You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 8, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. If you're a first-time listener, thank you so much for joining me, and thank your friend who sent you my way. If you're a repeat listener, really appreciate you stopping by again and appreciate your support. For those who are patrons on my Patreon page at patreon.com-slash-theparadox, thank you so much for your support. It really means a lot. It's very encouraging. And as always, every dollar that's raised there goes to the production and the promotion of the show. Today we have a departure from our previous shows before they've dealt with more of the, I guess, tangible aspects of medicine, one could say, whether it's certification or actual or um, electronic health records, choosing health insurance. Today we're going to be discussing something a lot different, but one that's probably, in many ways, maybe more important than lots of the others, and this goes towards physician health, and not just health like lifting weights, but this is health with uh, mental health. Physician burnout is obviously a real thing. If you're in medicine, you've seen this. Most people, if you uh, talk to them who are physicians, have been touched by suicide, uh, by a colleague or someone that they know, uh, whether it's through accidental overdose or someone just taking their own life um, intentionally. It's a real thing, and it's something that I think we don't spend much time talking about. And as we go into in the show, we discuss why we don't oftentimes talk about this, oftentimes because we are not allowed to. And so this is a real problem and something that I think it's important to not just physicians, but clearly anyone who's being cared for by physicians. And so I hope you enjoy this journey. It's, uh, again, different than the previous shows, but I think you'll learn a lot. I learned quite a bit. And I meet with Dr. Stacia Dearman. And her story is an interesting one where she focuses on malpractice, and there's a lot of stress that is placed in physicians. As you can imagine, anyone under litigation for any reason, uh, they're going to, it's going to be a stressor in life, along with all the other stressors we all have, right? But what is unique about medicine in some ways is that the mistakes you make and the litigation you face are potentially far more devastating uh, emotionally, psychologically, sort of intellectually, than other problems that you, uh, other litigation you may face in other walks of life, whether, you know, someone, because you hit someone's car or there's a contract dispute. Um, obviously, there are, everyone has, deals with these differently, but it is, it is unique somewhat in medicine that you have these malpractice stressors. And um, and so we talk about that quite a bit and, and go through Dr. Dearman's personal experience, which led her to this journey and I guess this, um, this movement that she's trying to start to try and help physicians deal with the isolation that comes with malpractice. As always, the show notes page found at 
theparadox.com slash 008, we'll have information on the books and resources talked about during the episode. So without further ado, Dr. Dearman. Welcome. Uh, this is Dr. Eric Larson. I'm here with Dr. Stacia Dearman, who is an ER pediatric physician in Akron, Ohio. And she reached out to me, oh, probably a month ago or so, after my fir- first episode was aired, uh, with a interesting sort of uh, thing to talk about. Because most of, most of the things when I had originally envisioned this podcast was to deal with physicians in the trenches, uh, dealing with health insurers, healthcare, bureaucracy, um, maintenance and certification boards, like the especially boards. And so I did not envision discussing sort of the, I don't want to say softer side of medicine, or but I think, um, I'm not sure exactly how best to put it, but I think the what we, we're going to discuss today is very different from the previous episodes where we talk about health insurance and electronic health records, sort of more tangible things. Today, it's more of like, a, I guess, a psychological psychiatric discussion. <laughs> and and uh, <clears throat> we're going to discuss about, we're going to discuss the whole person, right? The, the, uh, the emotional aspect of being a physician, because as we discussed in other episodes before, the reason we go into medicine is because we form an intimate bond with a patient. We want to heal them. We want to take uh, them along in a, their journey and help them. And, you know, obviously we have different takes on how we do that, whether it's a surgical or uh, an oncologist or as a pediatrician or whatever. Um, and so the way we approach that journey is different and sort of where we meet the person in their path, on the path. But there's always that intimate sort of personal bond that we form with patients. And so naturally when you get involved personally with anybody, you can be affected just as much as they are affected by their journey, right? Right. And it's a two-way street, so to speak. And so Dr. Dearman reached out to me and she said, well, you know, I have some interesting things to talk about when it comes to physicians and how they deal with sort of dealing with the job. And so I'd like to first probably just get your story and uh, then we can discuss a little bit more about why you got involved. I mean, I guess your story is probably why you got involved in this in this issue. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you got interested in how physicians have to deal with the profession and sort of the other aspect, the non-sort of medical school aspect of medicine. Right. So, well, thank you for having me. My um, special area of interest is in how we as physicians respond and recover when our patients have unexpected, unfortunate outcomes. And that for many of us segues then into the experience of medical malpractice litigation. And this is something I have a real passion for um, because I think it actually affects physicians profoundly and is something we don't very often talk about among ourselves. And I think the fact that we don't talk about it among ourselves makes it much worse even than it has to be. So that's that's the the area where my heart really sings. Um, the way I took an interest in this uh 
probably people can guess. I took an interest in it because I experienced it myself. I witnessed others experiencing it. Like you mentioned, I work in the environment of pediatric emergency medicine, which means I see generally patients under the age of 21. And with all manner of medical conditions, all manner of presenting complaints at every possible level of severity. So it's a a pretty broad waterfront that we cover. um, And we're covering it exclusively with patients in the earliest years of their lives. So, uh, you know, they're easy to get attached to very quickly. And if something goes wrong for them, we we feel it deeply because we know how many years of life expectancy lie ahead for them. Um, in my case, I had an experience about six years ago now where in the context of the pediatric emergency department where I was working at the time, I saw a young woman about 19 years of age who had some medical issues, but was definitely overall a contributing member of her family and her community. And the the upshot that brought me into this experience is that I saw her on a Friday afternoon. I cared for her, did some testing, and um, explored her issues over the course of about five or six hours. And then at the end of the day, after everything came back, talked with her primary doctor, and sat down with her and her parents, and together we decided it was appropriate for her to go home and see her doctor on Monday. So that was Friday evening, and then I came back to work on Saturday at about 5 p.m., ready to work the Saturday evening shift, and no sooner did I get settled in, but a specialist came to me from another area of the hospital to let me know that one of the patients I'd seen the day before was now in the ICU, and it turned out to be this young woman. Unfortunately, what had happened was that that afternoon, that Saturday afternoon before I came back into work, she arrested at home. Um, EMS were unable to intubate her. The small uh, freestanding local ER near her home where there was a a skilled team on duty, were also unable to intubate her, and she was flown by helicopter to the intensive care unit at the hospital where I worked, where this specialist who came to see me had managed her airway. Um, But as you can imagine, enough time had elapsed at that point that I knew as soon as I heard what had happened that her prognosis was just not good at all. Not good at all. Um, And, you know, she did in fact die a few days later. She was taken off of life support. And, uh, you know, right away I suspected that I was at risk of being seen as the person who had let her down and that I was likely to be sued. And in fact, ultimately I was. So um, I think part of what's powerful to me when I look back on that experience is how 
powerfully it affected me when I learned that she arrested, you know, that just sort of overwhelming emotional experience that I had. Uh, I can only compare the sensation I had to the feeling I've gotten when I've learned that someone I love has died, when I've gotten a call that somebody I care about has died. It really is utterly comparable to that experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And I now, now this, you know, six years have elapsed and this has become something I feel passionate about. I know that my experience is absolutely the norm for caring physicians. But when you're the one going through it, it doesn't feel normal at all. (laughs) Nobody told you to expect this, right? (laughs) Right. So it's really, it's stunning. And I think that moment of learning that something bad has happened is the beginning, like the first domino maybe in a chain of dominoes that falls, is the beginning of a long and challenging experience, which may progress to litigation or may not. There's a whole healing experience around that outcome. Um, and then there's a, a challenging experience packed up in litigation for those who experience that. Right. So, so that's where well, I, I began. I'm very sorry to hear that story. I mean, there are lots of people who have in medicine who've had stories. I mean, not Maybe not the exact same one, but obviously similar in some ways, right? Where, right. like you said, you you form those bonds, and I don't think I don't think people quite appreciate. It. I mean, I don't want to say make it seem like it's a parent losing a child, their own child, because you obviously have not had those years you spent with someone where you. But there is a, and it's not paternalistic, which is what I want to try and point out. It's not a paternalistic feeling that, but you definitely feel a responsibility to, to, for the outcome, whether it is in any way your fault or not. Right. I mean, I think you're, and, and right. when you're in medical school, there is the impression that there is that not that you are infallible, but that the expectation is infallibility. That's and right. That you're not allowed to make mistakes and we all make mistakes. And, you know, I, probably could have robots do our job and they would make mistakes. And because, you know, we're not, they're not treating airplanes where, where every part's in the same place and, you know, things diagnostically, everything's right. You know, we're all built the right. same. We're all totally different. There's, and so it makes it more difficult, I think, to get through these, these, uh, these events. I mean, I have right. fortunately not had to go through this personally, but I've had some patients who have, who have not survived. I mean, it was not, that sort of situation, but right, uh, you know, I have had partners who've had this, and you know, I and you are since there's that that infallibility sort of expectation that you have at, at a minimum of, of yourself. That I mean, I don't know how you cannot beat yourself up over this sort of thing, and that I mean, that has got to be part of it, and certainly initial sort of response. Right. No, I think that's exactly right. What what I now know, having really spent years now thinking about this question, is that this experience is actually very clearly defined. Um, the term people use to refer to it is that the person in my situation, for example, is referred to as the second victim. And that term really came into healthcare in about the year 2000. There was a 
truly beautiful essay penned by a physician from Johns Hopkins named Dr. Albert Wu. And he was writing in response to a big report issued by the Institute of Medicine called To Air is Human. This report was all around medical error and reducing medical error. So he penned this really beautiful essay in which he referred to the physician who is harmed when a medical error harms their patient as the second victim. But since that time, that term has been adapted and adopted to refer not only to the person who's harmed when they've made an error that harms their patient, but the person who's harmed when they feel like in some way they could have or should have protected the patient from harm, and they somehow failed to do so. And then even furthermore, people have discovered that if that harm nearly comes to the patient, people will have a similar experience. So for example, if you order the wrong drug dose and what you ordered has the potential to really harm your patient, you may have the experience even if the dose is never given or if a nurse nearly administers a wrong drug dose or a nurse administers a wrong drug dose that has the potential to do harm but the harm is averted, like say through Narcan, then still people can have this really potent experience that involves, as you mentioned, some sensations of guilt, a feeling of being ashamed, a feeling of being afraid. Uh, There's just a whole mix, sort of a physiologic fight or flight response. There's a whole mix of responses that we now know are normal. And the fascinating thing to me is that the person who's the international expert in this experience is actually a pilot. And he is is a master of safety science. He's Dutch. His name is Sidney Decker. He now works and lives in Australia. And so really, it's more than just healers, healthcare givers who have this experience. It's also people in aviation, air traffic controllers, you can imagine, would be at huge risk of the very same experience. So uh, it's well-documented among the military and firefighters, police officers, and I think, honestly, parents become second victims, too, when they're attempting to protect their child and their child is significantly harmed. So, So you're hitting the nail right on the head. It's a really intense mix of emotion that I think comes along and I think is embedded in our work at some level because as much as we may do to ensure that nothing goes wrong for patients, no matter how how much we manage to perfect our systems, we will never truly make them perfect and we ourselves will never be perfect. And then furthermore, we're dealing with imperfect human beings who are our patients. And as you said, you know, there's all kinds of physiologic variability there. So, right. I mean, things just happen, right? I mean, that's, yeah. It, yeah. you could drive down the same road a hundred times and then for whatever reason, I'm in Michigan, a deer's yeah. the road, right? And so you just, you sometimes you can be ready sort of, but you know, right. the things just happen. I, and I feel like when it comes to this sort of thing happening and when it comes to malpractice litigation, and if you're not a physician uh, or someone who's at risk for malpractice, the one thing you don't 
appreciate. I mean, I think people probably expect that not a lot of people talk about this. Yeah. But what's interesting about it is you're really not allowed to. And, and that's what I think people don't really quite grasp because I'm part of a credentialing board, for instance, at my hospital. And so, you know, we re- review uh, you know, applications and you have to, and one of the, and when you have to get, uh, you have to get peer reviews from your peers or from authoritative pe- instructors or something like that at school. And one of the questions in all of these uh, surveys is that, do you know if the person you're evaluating has been come before any sort of litigation or some sort of action as far as malpractice? And so and it's a way for, if you're a credentialing board, that if someone doesn't report it and then they get a note from someone saying, well, they've you know, been sued three times, you're like, well, there's some sort of, something fishy going on and you can you investigate it further. But what right. it really comes down to is now I have a disincentive to tell anyone what's going on. I mean, right. outside of the fact that even if, even if I've had a malpractice claim, it's been adjudicated and whatever, it's all done and it's been 10 years ago. I'm really not likely to talk about it. And right. so it it's kind of one of those things where I you know if you've if you've uh, if you've been through the process of, of miscarriage in your family, it's the same thing, right? Like it's no one talks about them. They happen all the time. And once right. you have one, people say, "Oh, yeah, we went through that twice or something." And you're like, "Oh, really? I you know, no one you had no idea it was so common." And it's kind of like that for malpractice, right? I mean, it, when it that just you can't talk about it and if you you and you're again you're not you're almost not allowed to and right. so you're kind of isolated that's right that's right and i think you know obviously i do talk about this and <laughs> it's fascinating to me point. given given that i talk about it it's fascinating to me how many people if i bring up that i'm doing public speaking on this or just any any aspect of the project i'm engaged in that i might bring up with someone it's so extraordinary to me how many people just sort of relax and then start to tell me a little bit of their own story and you can sense that they're just really kind of pleased to have the opportunity to talk to someone about it knowing that that person is comfortable hearing about it. I think miscarriage is a great analogy for that reason. So it's uh when I was in the midst of my own trial, my case I described went to litigation. And unlike most cases, went all the way to trial. And the trial was about two and a half years ago now and went for three weeks, if you can believe that. It was very draining. Um, In the midst of my trial, I stumbled upon a TED Talk by Pamela Weibel, who many people now know is a strong advocate in the realm of studying and preventing physician suicide. And I was struck by her assertion that I've now seen replicated elsewhere, that the equivalent of about 400 American physicians a year die by suicide. She compares it to losing one medical school per year. I was just really knocked over by that information. And being in the midst of the most difficult experience Really, I could say that I have ever had, and you know, 
harder than residency, harder than loss of loved ones. This was really the hardest thing I've ever done. Being in the middle of it, I thought there has to be some connection between at least some physician suicides and this experience of a, a difficult patient outcome and litigation. And that's what propelled me to to pursue this topic further. So as soon as my trial was over, I started just reading up on the on the subject and was amazed to learn that really the data is that most physicians are the in the United States are sued. There was a an excellent study done by some folks at Harvard published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2011 that concluded that 75% of physicians in quote unquote low risk specialties and 99% of physicians in the high-risk specialties will be sued by the time they reach the uh, the age of 65. So to me, it's like, well, we're pretty much all high-risk then, right? <laughs> Who's low-risk? Yeah, Nobody. Right. <laughs> um, and many specialties are are sued frequently enough that they're sued multiple times over the course of their career. But even with that, you're right people don't talk about it. So I bet that most listeners could not tell me who among their, you know, 30 colleagues they know best or classmates they went to medical school with has been sued or is in the middle of litigation right now. And it's going on all around us. That same study out of Harvard said that seven and a half percent at least based on their data, which was a pretty large sample, seven and a half percent were named as a defendant every year. So in these cases, take an average of like one and a half or two years to resolve. So something like maybe 10% of us at least are in the midst of litigation at any one time. So it's just, yeah, it's really an I mean, extraordinary thought. It, it, and it, and you might think, well, 10%, that's not much. But if you think about 10%, there, I mean, I've got 100, over 100 physicians in my group, and you know, I I know everybody. I can't imagine 10 or 11 or under litigation. And and it's interesting, your story, you said this happened six years ago, and then it resolved two and a half years ago. That means you were, you were sort of dealing with this on some level for over three years. Yes, I mean, that's, that's absolutely right. Three and a half years. Because it went all the way to trial, right? I mean- Oftentimes, yeah. it, it's either dismissed or it rarely goes to trial. So, I mean, that's pretty unusual. And um, But when it does, I mean, you're t- adding a long time. And I, you right. know, I, I, it's, it's a lot to go through. And so when you look at, I mean, when you look at numbers, you were talking about numbers a little bit there. Yeah. So when we're looking at numbers for physicians, 99%. So pretty much if you're in a high risk, especially which and you see even the low risk, like a family practice or psychiatry is 75%. Right. Um, because at some point your career, you're going to not diagnose something or someone will perceive there's something, you know, a lot of the times again, they're dismissed. And so they, there may, there may be some harm or that they will attribute to you, whether it was or not. And right. again, I'm not, I don't want to I don't want to make it sound like malpractice is unjustified. I mean, there are many instances where, if someone makes a mistake or does something wrong or is egregious in how they treat someone, um, that I think it's perfectly reasonable to, to adjudicate in, in the court of law. Um, right. 
but I think you know the the point here is is looking at how it affects physicians and and how and the great frequency that we see it. Uh, whether no matter who you are, you th- you may think you're going to dodge it, uh, but it's likely going to touch you at some point in your career, at least once. And and for certain specialties, especially the ones we're dealing with more, I guess you'd say, um, I I guess death or dismemberment or problems. I mean, surgical subspecialties, obviously, the risks are for infections and all sorts of things. And right. someone like a neurosurgeon, I mean, they're dealing with head trauma and all kinds of horrible things that, you know, whether they even walk in the room or not, there's the outcome is likely to be very poor for the patient. So obviously, they're at higher risk because, you know, someone could always make an assertion that had you done X, Y, Z, maybe this person would be doing better, right? Right, um, right, right. You're so right. What, that what kind of the- numbers, so what kind of numbers would you say is for like... Um, for how many physicians are under and then, and then what is this, how does this translate? Do you think towards the, the aspect of the suicide and the burnout and that sort of thing? Well, that's a good question. Uh, Well, I think if we, if we back up a little bit to like what kind of happens across specialties, um, at least that study from 2011, which I think is the best study out there so far regarding how many of us are sued and how it looks across specialties and uh, what the indemnity payments are. So that's a little bit, I wish we had newer data, but we we don't have a study like this one that's been done since that time. Um, but that study showed that at least among that population of physicians, which did represent all 50 states and numerous subspecialties, you could go from one end of the spectrum, say the neurosurgeons were uh, named as a defendant or sued 19, between 19 and 20 percent of neurosurgeons were served suit every year. So what does that mean for a neurosurgeon? That would mean being sued on average every five years, right? Uh, You've then got OBGYNs who among the specialties this study identified were the 12th most likely specialty to be sued. So they're not sued the most often, but they were the group who on behalf of whom the largest number of indemnity payments were made. So the largest number of payouts, something like 38% of the claims against OBGYNs in this study resulted in some kind of a payment to the, to the plaintiff. Then you've got pediatricians who are one of the least frequently sued maybe 3% of them or 2% of them every year in this study, but they are the ones with the highest average payout, probably because of the young age of the patients, right? So right. There's, there are different stressors for different groups, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. What was, the, what was the other part of your question? I think I've lost the thread because you asked me something further. Well, I, so I think, you know, and the, then the question is, so you have, I think it, we've pretty well established that there's a high frequency of, of people under uh, being sued right. and there's a stress that comes with that and, right. and it's, and you can't talk about it with anyone. And so how does that, how does that interplay into the emotional well being of the physician? Oh, oh yeah. Good question. So, you know, there is not as yet, maybe there will be at some point, there is not as yet a whole, whole lot of really good data around how 
the experience of the unexpected outcome and the litigation may interface with what we know about depression, burnout, and suicide among physicians. I don't think we know yet how much of a role the experiences I'm describing play in the larger picture of burnout and depression. There is very good data from a group at the Mayo Clinic who've been monitoring the question of physician well-being over the last, well, now almost nine years, I guess. They released a study in 2012 and then a second one in 2015 on these questions. And my bet is that they'll release the next installment late this year, 2018. So they have done these large surveys of physicians all across the country, uh, trying to capture, again, physicians in all specialties. And their study in 2015 sort of sealed the deal on my passion around this project because it came out right after my trial was over, like two weeks later. I've had this study fall into my lap that basically identified that about 54% of physicians responding to their survey, and it was almost 7,000 physicians, were identifying significant symptoms of burnout. So more than half. About 40% of physicians were identifying significant symptoms of depression in themselves. Now, that does not mean that they would be diagnosed with clinical depression if they underwent that evaluation. The, the study authors indicate that the sensitivity of the instrument they used is such that maybe one in four of those physicians would be identified with depression. So, but 40% had some symptoms thereof. And the number that really blew me away was that out of practicing physicians between the ages of 29 and 64, when they answered whether or not they had had thoughts of taking their own life in the prior 12 months, something like 7% of them identified that yes, they had had those thoughts. So that's a pretty impressive number, I think, to uh, think that 7% of the physicians around us who are actively in practice are having those sorts of thoughts. Um, Is that the same 7% who are being sued? I don't think we have any way of knowing that, (laughs) or at least not yet. (laughs) Right, that's what I presume, that it's coincidental. But I also presume there is some overlap. If I were to draw a Venn diagram, I'm sure the circles overlap. I just don't know how much, right? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. We don't know how much. But I I do think that... uh, Certainly, when I talk with physicians about this question, physicians who have been through difficult litigation where they've really, really felt strained by it, will sometimes say to me, well, that could do it. You know, they kind of recognize there's just an awful lot of strain associated with it, and the isolation is not the way to alleviate the strain. And in, I guess, giving some clarity to the number of 7%, that's significantly higher. It has to be significantly higher than the general population, right? I mean, it- yeah, that's right. That's right. That's what the Mayo study makes clear that the 
that the physician population is particularly at risk. Uh, and the, the data around physician suicide, there are numerous sources that indicate that the rate of physician suicide seems to be about twice the rate, nearly twice the rate of the general working population. And the Mayo study I referred to from 2015 identifies that the percent of physicians identifying in themselves symptoms of depression, some symptoms, is about twice the rate of the general population. So, so the distress among physicians is higher. There's no question. And I think a lot of things could be contributing. You know, there's a lot that's stressful in our work. There's a lot of stress in the way the healthcare systems have evolved over the last few decades. Um, But then there's also the stress of these challenging patient outcomes and uh, the interface between really being the caring person who is exactly the person who's cut out for the job and the challenge that that presents when the patient you care about is harmed. Right. And so, so, so you've been through, you've had this journey yourself and, and right. you recognize, I mean, we're talking about this and I can say that I've not really paid any attention to these, these studies came out. I don't read the new England journal of medicine as an anesthesiologist generally. Um, yeah, and so, yeah. and we don't talk about this. And so, there's clearly a big void, I guess, in in how we address these. I mean, I I recall in medical school there we have a we had I don't want to say a class, but we certainly talked about dealing with a difficult patient, delivering bad news, you know, make sure you take care of yourself and find support. But that was kind of like it. It was sort of that. I mean, that was sort of like a fortune cookie kind of um, advice, and that was that was sort of the extent of it. And it wasn't because these are people who were uncaring. I mean, these are physicians too who are teaching you for the most part, but it's kind of like, well, you know, there's not exactly a lot of, there aren't a lot of resources for us. And so you're kind of left with the cookie, you know, like the, the, the little thing you get in the fortune cookie. So you have right. formed it. You reached out to me because you are, you are taking it upon yourself to try and start, I don't know, a movement's probably the wrong word, but you're trying to create some place for physicians to find resources to help, to help them. Right. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Movement is not too strong a word. I think it's really, uh, what I aspire to is to see the birth of a whole new conversation about this. Um, I, the way I look at it is, you know, there was a time, for example, in our society when people did not talk about divorce or when people did not talk in polite society about breast cancer. They did not use that term in polite society. And it absolutely does not benefit the people going through it to feel that the experience they are in the midst of is too shameful to even name. I I feel very strongly that if we cannot talk about it, then we can't survive it in the best in the best way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right? So, so I feel very strongly that beginning to open a conversation that I hope will become a conversation that involves 
many, many more people than me <laughs> will be helpful. You're not obviously the only one. Yeah, I don't need to be the voice crying in the wilderness, right? It really needs to become a, a larger conversation that we can all participate in. So I recently gave a talk at a law school here in my city in Cleveland at Case Western, and I drew the comparison to Betty Ford because when Betty Ford was our first lady, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and had a total mastectomy at a time when they weren't doing reconstruction and people did not talk about breast cancer in public. So she could have been private about that, but she actually chose to go public with that reality and was even public with her feelings about her worries about how her husband would feel about her after her surgery, for example. And I think changed the world for women with breast cancer because we look back now, this would have been in the early 70s, right? So what is that? Just over 40 years ago. And the world is completely different now for women with breast cancer in no small part, thanks to her bravery in getting out there and talking about it. So I think similarly, if some of us get out and talk about this, we can make the world a different place for generations of medical students to come. Um, So I first started by doing some public speaking. I started small. I started with my division at my hospital. And even doing that, standing up in front of my colleagues and saying, this happened to me, and here's what I want you to know about this experience so that you know, you come through it better if and when it happens to you. That was very scary to stand up in front of my colleagues and do that. <laughs> yeah, because you're, I mean, it, essentially you're admitting that you, I mean, whether you did or not, you're always worried you're being judged, right? Because that's what the fear is, right? You're a physician right. and, you know, everyone else like, because everyone's had the patient come in, you're like, how oh, are those guys at that, you know, rinky-dink hospital thinking of why they thought it was this? It's obviously not that. And, you know, those guys don't know what they're doing. And you feel that standing for your colleagues, uh, that you're certainly at risk for being judged, or maybe you are the only one, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe you happen to be in a room full of physicians who've never been sued. You're all by yourself. And I mean, that's, so what you, what you actually find or what I actually found doing this is that I have yet to find myself in a large group of physicians and none of them have been sued. And that it's a a huge relief to people to talk about it. And a number of people, I think, had strong emotions. uh, And it was a relief to know they, they aren't alone in those emotions. So I was glad I did it. And then subsequently looked for opportunities to speak at other hospitals in the community and so forth. And what I find is that it can be challenging to bring physicians into that kind of a setting to talk about this, partly because if they've never experienced it, they're still in a place where they're hoping they never will. So they would probably rather not talk about it. If they're in the middle of it, I have the feeling that it's very uncomfortable for them to hear about it in a large group. They'll sometimes inquire about, uh, physicians will inquire about, can this be via WebEx, for example? And I think it's because they need to hear about it in privacy. If it's behind them, then they'll come and they'll drag their trainees with them. (laughs) 
(laughs) So that's what I found. (laughs) So all that being said, I've started blogging because I feel like I want to create a space where physicians can learn about this at any hour, day or night in the privacy of their bathroom, if that's where they want to read about it, you know, as, as private as they want to be. Um, and I, I aspire, I'm, I'm beginning to build a little bit of a coaching practice, and I aspire to build safe communal mechanisms for physicians to receive support around this around this area, you know, and I think someday maybe even retreats for those who've been through it to kind of heal after the fact. I think there's just a lot of power for people in coming together with others who've experienced what they've experienced. No different from women with breast cancer meeting other women who've had breast cancer, right? I think it's the same thing, same thing. I mean, yeah. I think, I think we're all, I mean, as individuals, we're all unique in different ways. And and to know that you're not the only one with whatever it is that, you know, whether it's you're the only one who likes jazz music or whatever might be my political views that are a little bit unorthodox. And to know there are other people who have those same views or deal with similar struggles. I mean, that means a lot. Yeah. You've gone to, you've gone to law school and you successfully convinced the entire class not to go become malpractice attorneys. <laughs> and, and, and you've, and you formed this community called Thrive Physician at thrivephysician.com. Right. The, it's and, actually called Thrive Insight Education Support, but you're right that the website is thrivephysician.com. I understand how websites work. You gotta, you know, yeah. people's, their, their fingers get tired at a while. Um, so thrivephysician.com, you have resources for physicians and is this the where you're looking to kind of consolidate things and to try and drive the discussion and f- to create this sort of environment for physicians? Right. Yeah. This really is the. It's in its infancy. This is something that I uh, founded in the fall of 2017. So almost exactly two years after my own trial, uh, I founded Thrive, and so I've begun first with the blogging which maybe I've been doing for about three months, just very slowly and steadily. Um, I have taken and enjoyed the opportunity to talk with individual physicians one-on-one about their experiences, trying to get a broader perspective than just my own experience. Um, And physicians can reach out to me through that website if they want to explore the question of like litigation, stress management, coaching, they can reach me through that website. But I also look forward over time, and I think I hope that this will unfold very organically. I look forward to learning from the community what it is they most need and figuring out, okay. Is, are retreats after the fact what people need? Are boot camps while they're in the middle of it what people need? Are opportunities to just uh, engage in some kind of an, an anonymous online support group or mechanism through you know a very private um, venue? Like not we're not going to form a Facebook group. It needs to be really truly private yeah. for people, right? right? Is that what they need? So just finding the ways little by little to 
invent and offer people the support that will actually benefit them most as they traverse these experiences or as they observe others or they become the people who are on their hospital's medical staff wellness committee or the people who are supervising other younger physicians. You know, there are just so many ways in which I think this kind of information can be helpful to the medical community. Right. And so at Mm thrivephysician.com, you have, you have these sorts of resources and, and at least an avenue to sort of create more clearly. Right. I mean, it's, it's going to be the the hub for right. you to, to try and ex, to try and get people to share their experiences and figure out how to best get through these. And everyone's different. So probably there are, you know, 20 different methods are probably the best way, not just one. Uh, That's right. Are there, are there um, any books you'd recommend? Are there things to try and to help get through this process? I mean, I, I don't think you've written one, but, and obviously you're available for speaking and, and visiting groups and talks, but w- are there any resources that are at the website or outside that you recommend? Well, so at the website, you know, I, as I said, this is so much in its infancy that I'm really just even still building my resources page little by little. But I would say if I were to suggest books and um, I'll send you these titles for your show notes, but there is a book that I found helpful personally by two authors named Dodge and Fitzer, F-I-T-Z-E-R. And the title of the book is When Good Doctors Get Sued. And it's just a very practical little manual. It's not a super thick volume. It's the kind of thing you can pick up and put down as you proceed through the process of litigation. So I thought that was a good one and I would recommend it. There is a little volume written by a lawyer named David Grappo, G-R-A-P-P-O, entitled How to Answer Questions at Your Deposition. And that's really designed for someone going into any kind of deposition and is a great little book. These are, these are both readily available through, say, Amazon. Um, and then for people who want to have a better understanding generally about the experience of the second victim, whether because they want to see their own experience reflected there or they want to support others who are going through it, you could look at almost any of the work of this pilot I mentioned named Sidney Decker. His last name is D as in David, E-K-K-E-R. And the book that I first read by him is called Second Victim. Uh, But there are numerous others. And he has a website, sydneydecker.com. And you can look at a series of video lectures there as well, in which he talks about what really constitutes a second victim, what puts us at risk of being second victims, um, and his work is very interesting. And I think, for me, it was very healing in a way uh, to learn about that work because it helped me to reframe my experience from one in which I felt like I felt so terrible because I had failed as a physician to reframe it and look at it as I was at risk of having this very hard experience because I am the type of person who bravely goes into a line of work that requires for me 
A, to be compassionate, and B, to be ready to make very difficult decisions in the face of very real uncertainty. So it sort of spun the kaleidoscope a little bit for me so that things looked very different and I was able then to see myself actually more like uh, a hero than someone who had failed. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I think no question. That's, that's exactly, I, I mean, I, you, that's how you, you don't envision yourself as a hero, but I think you, you, I think we under, we undersell what we do. Sometimes. Yes. I know. We I do. underestimate. I mean, I like, it's like, hey, I'm just going to work. Yeah. Right? And, and to the nurses out there too, same thing. Absolutely. Right? They're just going to take care of patients and, but there's, there's so much more that you're doing. It's not like selling. That's a right. It's really a different sort of job. And the emotional component is significantly different than it is for many jobs. I mean, obviously, again, people have emotional connections with all sorts of things they deal with. But for our, when you have the, the sorts of things we deal with or that are lurking in the shadows that you never know or where they are, if they're there, uh, you know, that's it's always in the back of your mind. And, and then if you're actually go through this process, clearly it's the you've got to not only do you have to deal with the 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 stress and the right. shame and you know, the feel of, feeling of failure, you're also practicing medicine for one and a half years or two years that's while exactly you have right. those feelings. Yes, that's I mean, exactly right. You're still seeing right. patients it's, it's and like, generally in the very same environment where whatever event transpired occurred, right? Yes, that's exactly right. That's right. exactly right. And people... And yeah. people there know what happened, right? I mean, the, they'll oh, yeah, I remember last week, blah, blah, blah happened. And, well, I don't know how she's doing, but she's right. okay. Looks fine. Right. And I think we as physicians, but, you know, it's our it's culture always- and our habit to be very stoic in the face of difficulty in our professional environment. So we hide it well. But uh, I think many of us would benefit from not having to hide it quite so much. Right. If we knew that our colleagues would uh, understand and be there for us, that I think is very valuable. I think it's very yeah. valuable. So, so, so thriveforphysician.com is that right. if people are looking to find you to um, set up a program or have you come talk or look for resources, how do they get a hold of you? Is it through that website the best way from to find you? That's a very easy way to do it. There is an obvious button right on the homepage that I think says connect, it takes you right to a contact form. So go. a person can feel free absolutely to email me or my email down at the bottom, all the way at the bottom of any page on the site, there's a place to click to email. So certainly people can reach out to me that way. Um, and I'll be happy to, to explore things with them in whatever way suits their need. So. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's the problem no one wants to talk about. It's a problem that's, I don't know if it's getting bigger, but it's certainly still present. And it's probably something that we need to, we need to slow down and from taking care of patients for a second, uh, as with our part colleagues and, and look to make sure we keep each other healthy. Yes. And that's not just physically, but it's also spiritually. And I appreciate what you're doing. I think it's a great venture. I, I, I'm looking to what's going on in here in Grand Rapids, the home of Betty Ford, uh, and that's actually an interesting story. 
<laughs> an issue story that I had not even been aware of because that is that's before my time. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine that it was taboo, but I mean, I can believe I can believe it. It probably was, and so yeah. it's interesting that that happened. And we have the Betty Ford Cancer Center here, where I and uh, and so it's it, it's it's interesting how think culture can change. And I think you're right. I think it's probably it's probably good to to try and change it a little bit so that we can we can all heal. And so I would recommend everyone go yeah. to thrivephysician.com on the show notes page. This will be episode eight. So it's theparadox.com 008. Again, I'm being very ambitious that I'll make it to episode 100. I keep thinking I'm going to, I, I keep thinking I'm going to run out of topics and I, and they're starting to pile up now. So that's actually, I guess, a good problem. Although the hard thing is yeah. trying to schedule it. As I mentioned before, my last podcast, yeah. it turns out physicians are very busy. And so to try and get us to an hour that we, <laughs> I mean, you know, like try and get everything quiet because the house is full or it's late at night or something. And so, you know, I'm on call this night or whatever. So I'm glad we yeah. had a chance to chat. I hope, uh, I wish you the best of success and I imagine we'll meet up again sometime. Thank you so much for, for joining me. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. You know, I, it's something I can't, it's not like I can't deal with it. I just occasionally yeah. have to cut a little bit. It's part of the, uh, you know, the learning process and the audio issue. So yeah. 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 That's, that's why I get paid the big bucks here. <laughs> podcast. You and me too. <laughs> yeah. I'd be much better off taking an extra night of call and I probably could pay for 50 years of podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> what I make for this show. It's a it's a labor of love, but it's actually been pretty fun. So I appreciate you reaching out to me. That's All right. Great. So we'll go ahead and get started here.